As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. You see, there's certain guests that I try to get, but some people are just too busy. Their schedule is full. You have so many red, so much <laughs> red tape, and, <laughs> so much red tape and bureaucracy to go through. That can't be me, the, though. <laughs> you have to talk to the PA first. <laughs> then you have to work 14 working days. I have to <laughs> sync your time because you never know where they are in the world. <laughs> nah, but uh, it's an absolute honor to be joined by none other than my bro, Mustafa. Briggs, welcome finally to the Malcolm Effect. It's about Alhamdulillah. time. I thought you was boycotting me, to be honest, because I did see every single other person in the world that on this podcast except me. I was like, wow. Okay, MM. Wow. No, you know, it's, the thing is, I wanted to be established before you come on. You know, I mean, you can't, you, you can't just bring you onto anything, you know. It has to be the thing that's popping. And now we're getting there a little bit, a little bit. Now we can have no. someone like you on the show. Mashallah, may Allah put barakah in it, man. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you to see your growth from when we started the podcast, when we got the mic on Amazon Prime and delivered yeah. to the wrong address, and then now I'm <laughs> doing, like, <laughs> everything's good. Do you know what I mean? But man, I've been supporting this podcast from the beginning. So you number know, one, day dot day dot day dot. All I will uh, say, if you're gonna continue using Arabic words, please explain what they mean. Okay. Oh yeah, I forgot your new audience. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even familiar with so baraka means blessings so Thank i'm just you. praying that the divine power the divine source behind creation continues to put blessings in all your endeavors our man said it's just gentrified dua <laughs> <laughs> no but you know what it is for those who don't know obviously me and mustafa distantly related but also very 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 close friends for the last four most of my formative years and it's absolutely honor and and privileged to have him on the show, actually. I've, I've been intimately intertwined and witnessed his growth firsthand. I remember when he first started his Beyond Bilal, which is now internationally acclaimed presentation. <laughs> and if I was to start today and start listing all the countries that he's been to and done this and delivered that presentation, we wouldn't end. The, the whole episode <laughs> would be just that. And now he's bringing out a book, which we'll talk more into. But... Yeah. Before we talk about, I mean, those who know Mustafa, you can see his social media and see him on and interact with him. But you mm-hmm. know what? One thing me and you love, Mustafa, mm. we love a shade. And you love shades. Lo- you, know, you, know you know I'm right with the Lord now. I'm right. I have to get right with the Lord. <laughs> no. no okay, go like on, go that. on. <laughs> not even like that, yeah. It's not even like a shade or thing, yeah. But there's something that. Normally, I take a. I mean, this will be very, very educational, but I'm gonna send some shots. This let this this podcast. Okay, I don't let me do a disclaimer in it. All on this podcast are uh, his and his alone. When you come for him on Twitter, do the at Mustafa Briggs. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I know people love it at you on Twitter. I love to come for you. Nah, honestly, Abdullah, I'm here. I'm, behind, I'm, I'm supporting you, fam. Go nah, on. That's all good. Basically, we have to talk about the Afrocentrists. <laughs> Okay. The cultural nationalist. Okay. The black nationalist. Okay. The, I won't say names just yet, but particularly <laughs> there's an angle that comes that speaks about 
the relationship of Islam as it pertains to its de- as it developed within West Africa. And people use this as an evidence to say black people cannot shouldn't be Muslim because just as they shouldn't be Christian because Christianity was used to enslave black people, particularly mm-hmm. the Africans during mm-hmm. the transatlantic slave trade, mm-hmm. Arabs did the same thing. And therefore it's not our religion. It can never be a black religion. Mm-hmm. Bro, let's talk. Break it down. Wagwan. Okay, so this is exactly what my presentation Beyond Bilal deals with. Mm-hmm. And I recently got in touch with actually one of my close friends growing up. He's a rapper now. And um, mm-hmm. we reconnected after many years and he was asking me what I was doing. And he was kind of telling me these same kind of concerns and questions that he had because he hears it from the our Afrocentric brothers, our black nationalist brothers. I would say it all starts with, and this is what my book is going to be about. So my book is coming out in October and it's got five chapters. Okay. So the first chapter is Black History in the Quran. Mm-hmm. The second chapter is Bilal and Beyond, the Black Companions yep. of the Prophet. Mm-hmm. May peace and blessings be upon him. That's Prophet Muhammad. Mm-hmm. The third chapter is Land of Mansa Musa, Islam in West Africa, discussing Islam in West Africa. And I just finished editing this chapter. So that's going to be super relevant to what we're talking about today. And then the mm-hmm. other chapters deal with like Islam in the Americas and female scholarship of Islam, which isn't really relevant. But essentially, the first, first thing we have to realize, and this is something that not only do black Muslims not know, non-Muslims don't know, but a lot of Muslims don't know, is that many of the central figures mentioned in the Quran and they share characters with the Judeo-Christian tradition as well, were described by the Quran, by the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, and by the scholars of Islam as being black people. Mm-hmm. And that begins with Adam himself, the first man. Yep. If we yep. And you know, I discuss it more and more in my book, but I'll give you like a taster here of the fact that the word Adam itself means black. The word Adam itself, as used in classical Arabic, describes a skin tone that's darker than brown. So black. Mm. And then Adam is described as being that skin tone. Allah talks about in the Quran, it refers to the mud that he's created from, Hama al-Masnoon, as black mud. And when the people Mm -hmm. give commentaries on this, they talk about the fact that the mud was either black naturally or it was fermented until it changed color and became black and then Adam Mm. was created from it. So the origin of mankind, according to the traditional Islamic narrative, is that mankind begins black which corresponds with scientific evidence. As we know, the first human beings, you know, life began in Africa. Then when we come to Moses, he's described as being black by the Prophet Muhammad. Peace and blessings Mm -hmm. be upon them both. When we come to Jesus, he's described as being black by the Prophet Muhammad. Peace and blessings be upon them both. And then when we talk about the Prophet Muhammad himself, he traces his ancestry back to a black African woman who's Hajar, the wife of of, of Abraham. He traces his ancestry back to her. And when his companions are traveling to to Egypt, to Nubia, to Sudan, he says, a time will come where you will travel into Egypt. Beware of our relatives, those who have Mm. black hair and black skin and curly hair. This is a narration Mm. because they are our relatives through ancestry and they are our relatives through marriage. Mm. And he tells the Arabs this. Not only that, but his closest companions and his own relatives are described as being black as well. So we see Ali ibn Abi Talib, who's his son-in-law, his fourth successor, and the father of his two grandchildren, and everybody who mm-hmm. traces their ancestry or their lineage back to the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him today, traces their ancestry through him. He was described as being black. 
Because we have mm-hmm. to remember that original Arabs were darker than the Arabs we see today. The Arabs yeah. we see today are not original Arabs. Most of them, they're Arabized peoples. They were Phoenicians, mm. Levantine. Yeah, they what? were Phoenicians, Levantine, Persians, Copts, Byzantine, you Romans. You know I'm so all of these people. I already knew this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to add the sound effects for Spice, <laughs> innit? You me laugh too. Do you know what I mean? But they're Arabized people. They're not Arabs. Like, I, was, I recently met somebody... And they had blonde hair and blue eyes, but they're Arab. And I was like, you're Arab. I thought you were white. I thought you were Caucasian. And they were like, no, 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 I'm Arab. I'm 100% Arab. Da, 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 da. And then they're like, well, actually, we do have some. And then they started naming all these Eastern European, you know, with the Arab conquest, immigration, etc., that mixed yeah. in with them to make them look like they are, look like they look now. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, that's the story of most people who call themselves Arabs today. It's become more of a culture and a language than the actual genetically you are Arab. You have some Arab ancestry, but the majority of your DNA is not Arab. So mm-hmm. with all of that, the point being, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu his, his son-in-law, his cousin, Ali ibn Abi Talib, was described as being Adam. The same word mm-hmm. used to describe Moses, Jesus, and Adam himself as being black. Yep. Omar bin al-Khattab, the second successor of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was, was his father was three quarters Ethiopian. So all of these things mixed in, and then the Prophet Muhammad's own descendants, peace and blessings be upon him, such as Muhammad Nafsu Zakiya, who led a revolution against the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad. The Caliph of Baghdad used to call him charcoal because of how dark he was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he's the son of Abdullah al-Kamil. Abdullah al-Kamil's father is the son of one of the Prophet Muhammad's grandsons, Hassan, and his mother is the daughter of Hussein. So Mm -hmm. these are people who were part of the lineage of the Prophet that were dark enough to be nicknamed charcoal so in a religion like that where the central figures are all black people or a lot of the central figures are black people how can the religion itself be anti-black that's the foundation number one number two when you come to the spread of islam in west africa that's a completely different story and that is something that i feel people need to study more of and i've spoken about it in my book so the thing that I've recently just um, edited was a was a section, and I'm going to read this section to you guys, and you guys let me know. Oh, sneak think peek, yes, yeah? sneak peek, sneak preview. This is exclusive <laughs> on the Malcolm Effect right now. You heard it here first. So, I speak about the fact that in a thousand years ago, let's let's go back to a thousand years. The is the religion of Islam was established in the Arabian Peninsula in the 7th century. It's been around for over 1,400 years. We recently just celebrated the Islamic New Year and we're over 1,400 years old as a religion. If we go back, we backspace to 1,200 years ago. Mm -hmm. The preeminent empire in West Africa, which is in today's modern day, what we would call Mali, is called the Ghana Empire. So we have an Islamic scholar, and I'll read you this section from the book. We know a bit about Ghana's socio-political situation due to the observation of scholars and travellers at the time who wrote about them. The earliest reference we have to Ghana was from the Arabian scholar Al-Fazari, who wrote about Ghana between 815 and eight, no, 815 and 828, referring to it as Ghana, the land of gold, and detailing the geographical dimensions of the kingdom. Then, around 200 years later, we see a lengthier mention of the empire in another book called Kitab al-Masalik wal-Mamalik, which is the Book of Roads and Kingdoms, written in Mm -hmm. 1068. So look at how long ago this was. Mm -hmm. And this was based on literature and reports of merchants and travelers who were part of the sand roads. You know, you have the Silk Roads, which was the Middle East, Asia, and Europe. 
There's also something which I like to call the sand roads, which is the Sahara Desert. There were trade routes between West African nations and North African nations. So the North African nations, as we know at that time, were Islamicized, they were Arabized, and they were trading with West Africans. And the most preeminent trading partners that they had at that time was the Ghana Empire. And so they talk about the king of the Ghana Empire, Al-Bakri, who's the scholar. He writes this book in the year 1067 or 1068. And so he says, look at this, their king today in the year 460, meaning 460 years after the Prophet Muhammad's migration from Mecca to Medina, peace of blessings be upon him, mm-hmm. and he is Tunka Manin, and he ascended the throne in 455. The name of his predecessor was Basi, and he became the ruler 85. He led a praiseworthy life on account of his love of justice and friendship with the Muslims. Basi was the uncle, so he talks about the fact that Basi, who was the previous king, mm-hmm. was the maternal uncle of Tunka Manin, the current king, because their okay. custom and habit is that kinship is inherited only by the son of the king's sister. You know, most West African nations were matrilineal. They weren't patriarchal. Yeah. So yeah. you wouldn't inherit from your father. You would inherit from your mother's brother. Okay. And a lot of people would inherit their names, not from their fathers, but from their mothers. Mm-hmm. And this is something we see even until up until the past hundred years with Wolof culture. Wolof culture was originally matriarchal or matrilineal, sorry. So more emphasis was given on the maternal line than the paternal line. Mm -hmm. So Ghana, we see, is a traditional African kingdom. The kingdom is inherited through the matrilineal lineage. And then he he goes into describing the city. And he says, the city of Ghana consists of two towns situated on a plain. One of these towns is inhabited by Muslims and is large and possesses 12 mosques in which they assemble, one of them in which they assemble for Friday prayer. And there are salaried imams and mu'azins. So imams are the leaders, the people who lead the prayers. Mu'azins are the people who stand in the tower and call people to prayer, as well as jurists and scholars. And then he describes the environment. They have sweet water from which they drink and grow vegetables, etc. So look at this. You have a non-Muslim king following yeah. a traditional African religion but in his capital city, there are 12 mosques. Wow. Number one. Then the king has a palace and a number of dome dwellings all surround within enclosure like a city wall. And the houses of the inhabitants are made of stone and acacia wood. So they weren't living in mud huts. They were living in houses <laughs> of stone and, and what, acacia wood. What, what century say this was again? This was in the 10... In, in, the, in the 11th century. So this was okay. 1068. He's writing this okay. report. Yep. So this is a thousand years ago in West Africa. Yep. West Africans are trading with the wider world, building buildings from acacia and stone, having sweet water wells where they're farming and growing vegetables, etc. And so he says, in the king's town, he has a mosque which the Muslims who arrive at his court pray in. And around the king's, tome, uh, king's um, town are dome buildings and groves and thickets where the sorcerers of these people, the men in charge of their religious court, live. So what does that show you? That traditional African religions... And people who practice traditional African religions are living alongside Muslims in this city. He said, in them too are the idols and the tombs of their kings. So they're animists, they're worshipping. You know, the traditional African way that you see in all the Nollywood films. I'm about to say that what we see in Nollywood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they're in thinking, the woods. I'm he thinking says. of that meme, how to become a ritualist, but still be loved by God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And so he talks about the woods and he says, these woods are guarded and none may enter them and know what is there, which is something you see mm. in most traditional African religions until today. They have, you yep. know, the sacred forest, which is where they practice all of their rituals. And then mm. that's also where the king's prisons are. Then he describes 
describes the court of the king. So he said, the king's interpreters, the official in charge of his treasury, and the majority of his ministers are Muslims. And amongst the people who follow the king's religion, only him and his heir, who is the son of his sister, may wear sewn clothes. All others wear robes of cotton, silk, and brocade, according to their means. Then he goes in to describe the life of the people, their religious life, etc. Yeah. But what this shows you is that a thousand years ago in West Africa, the Arabs haven't invaded. They haven't forced yeah. anyone to convert to Islam. They're not ruling the Ghana Empire or the Mali Empire or any of the other empires in West Africa. But the West Africans themselves, through their interaction with them and through trade, are deciding to become Muslim. And they're coexisting mm -hmm. with the fellow citizens of their nation who do not practice Islam. And they're not even practicing the Abrahamic faith. They're practicing the traditional African religions. So we know then even the way that Islam was spread in West Africa was through peaceful interaction and through education. Many people who mm -hmm. were not Muslims would send their children to study Arabic and study the Quran with Muslims in order to provide their children a better opportunity to climb the social ladder, to be able to trade with Arabs, who, was the, who were the key to the wider world. And so Islam becomes a, a religion in West Africa of scholarship, and it becomes a religion in West Africa of trade, and it becomes a religion yeah. in West Africa of... We don't start to see jihads happening, so holy wars, Islamic holy wars happening, until the 17th, 18th century in West Africa. And most of them are in response to the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah, They're not even it, it, an opportunity for... Muslims to spread Islam. So the narrative then that Islam was spread through Africa by the sword and the Arabs came in and they were trading slaves and that's how West Africans became Muslim is completely false. There was an attack on the Ghana Empire by I was Arabs. I about to ask about that, yes. Yes, there was an attack, but that wasn't a religiously motivated attack. It was an economically motivated attack. And by the time they attacked, which is at the end of the Ghana Empire in the 12th century or the 13th century, Islam had already been there for 500 years. Because this guy's writing, the first time we mention Arab, we hear Arabs mention the Ghana Empire is in the 800s. So that's 1,200 years ago. Then 200, later, 200 years later, in the 11th century, we see them talking about the capital city has 12 mosques. Mm. And then 200 years after that, that's when the Arabs invade because they're jealous of the wealth. It has nothing to do with them trying to enforce the Arabic language or spread Islam because Islam had already been present there. You see, this is why knowledge is power because, you know, straight. No, because honestly, when I hear the argumentation of those who talk about Islam being an imperial force in West Africa, they always cite, oh, well, the Moroccans came and destroyed the Songhai Empire. I'm like, well, if you knew your. Because the maths is not mathing. Because the if you knew the maths. Because you know Islam had been there 500 years before that. Four to five. And do you know what is what's, what's even interesting is that you mentioned the Songhai Empire. So the Moroccans came in and attacked the Songhai Empire. I was talking yeah. about the Ghana Empire, which preceded okay, okay, the okay. Mali Empire, which preceded the Songhai Empire. Okay, but... so, the Mali, so the Mali Empire. So the Ghana Empire wasn't Muslim, even though they had a large Muslim population. Yeah. The, the, when they decline after their attack, the Mali Empire rises, and that's where you mm -hmm. see Mansa Musa and all of those people. But in this same book, and this is something I want to highlight. In this same book, they mention how the Mali Empire becomes a Muslim empire. Mm. And how does he say this? And listen to this story. He talks about, he said, beyond this country, so he talks about Songhai, and then he said, beyond this country lies another called Malal, which they know now is Mali. He mispronounced it. The king mm -hmm. of which is known as Al-Muslimani, the Muslim. Mm -hmm. 
He has thus called because his country officially because his country became afflicted with drought one year following another. The inhabitants prayed for rain, sacrificing cattle till they had exterminated almost all of them. But the drought and the misery only increased. So they were non-Muslims and they were taking their cattle and sacrificing to the gods to get to for the drought to increase. Then he said the king had a guest who was a Muslim and who used to read the Quran and was acquainted with the Sunnah. So the Quran is the holy book of Islam. The Sunnah is the practice of the Messenger Muhammad's uh, peace and blessings be upon him. I'm doing well yeah. now, so you're not Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> That's this. the majority of them, you know. But... <laughs> yeah. To this, the man complained of the calamities that assailed him and his people, and the and the Muslim man said to the king, "O king, if you believe in one God and testified that He is one, and testified that Muhammad is His messenger, peace and blessings be upon him." and you accepted the religious laws of Islam, I would pray for you for deliverance from your plight so that God's mercy would envelop all the people in your country and your enemies and adversaries might envy you on that account. Thus, he continued to press the king until the king accepted Islam and became a sincere Muslim. The man made him recite from the Quran and taught him all his religious obligations and practices, and then he made him wait until the eve of the following Friday. Then he ordered him to purify himself by complete ablution clothed him in a cotton garment which he had, and then the two of them came towards a mound of earth, and the Muslims stood praying side by side. So the king and this Muslim man, and they prayed the prayer that we know in the Islamic religion to be Salatul Istisqa, which is the prayer that Mm -hmm. the Prophet Muhammad would use to receive rain. Mm -hmm. He said, they prayed for part of the night, and the Muslim reciting the invocations, and the king saying, Amin. Then the dawn had just started to break when God caused abundant rain to descend upon them. So the king ordered all the idols in his kingdom to be broken and expelled the sorcerers from his country. He and his descendants after him, as well as the nobles, were sincerely attached to Islam, whilst the common people of his kingdom remained polytheists. Wow. Since then, the rulers have been given the title of al-Musulmani. So this is how the Mali Empire entered Islam. The king and the important people, the ministers, etc., became Muslim. And yes. then, but they left, so they didn't enforce Islam upon their subjects they left the rest of the people to convert to islam over time and what's interesting is that this king is who this king we assume is the great uncle of mansa musa Mm -hmm. so we know mansa musa became the king that was famous for going on his pilgrimage to mecca the most wealthiest man who ever lived etc but we don't celebrate that that. we don't say well you (laughs) we just note that as a historical fact, yeah. <laughs> okay, you have to clarify that for the for the, for the social justice warriors. Huh? But that king for that my was mentioned, people, my Marxist people, them for your Marxist people. <laughs> but that king that was mentioned in the extract was known as some people say was Mansur Uli, whose real name was okay. Yere Lincoln, and he was the son of Sunjata Keita. So you know, Sunjata Keita mm-hmm. was the one who established the Mali Empire. He was yep. known as the Lion King. He was, you know, the, the the one who had the authority over the twelve kingdoms, and he yeah. united twelve kingdoms from the the Mali Empire. So his son Yere Lincoln was the one that converted to Islam, mm-hmm. and then his brother Manding Bori Kato was supposed to be the king after him, but but instead, uh, Yere Lincoln seized the throne for himself, and then he ex- he expanded across West Africa. So he okay. was that king that became Muslim. And he was succeeded by um, his uncle's children. His uncle, Manding Bori, was the grandfather of Mansa Musa. So mm-hmm. after Yere Lincoln, all the rest of them were Muslim. And that's how Islam started to spread amongst them. 
But we can see that there was this concept of religious pluralism. Islam wasn't forced upon the population, but people just chose to become Muslim over time in West Africa. And the Arab invaders, number one, Arabs did invade, I think, twice or three times. And they didn't Mm -hmm. succeed in ruling over West Africans. There's nowhere in history where you see Arabs coming in and making West Africa an Arab territory or ruling over them. They defeated Mm -hmm. one kingdom, another kingdom rose and kicked them out. And Islam, as it spreads in West Africa, it spreads through education, through people converting kings, chiefs, powerful people, educating Mm -hmm. the children of non-Muslims in the Quran and in Arabic language. And that's how Islam starts to spread. And that's why West Africa is such an extremely, you know, like there's Dara's everywhere. Dara is a Quranic school. That's how Islam spread in West Africa. And I think it's super important that this point is emphasized because it's not about, I mean, for me personally, my mission isn't like, okay, let me go and convert everyone and force everyone to be Muslim. Mm. That's not important. That's that's not the most important thing for me Mm -hmm. at this point. But I think historically it's important that we correct the notion that, oh, it's not a black religion. And therefore we cannot, you know, we cannot, we have to, in order for us to have some kind of liberation or emancipation of black people, that they must be an abandonment of Islam in particular. And I find I it quite go, laughable. Yeah, yeah I find it laughable. And I would go as far as to say it's the blackest religion, to be honest, because mm. in the 14th century, after Mansa Musa goes on his pilgrimage and comes back, we start to see him investing money in mosques. But he uses these mosques not only as places of prayer, but he uses them as places of education, as centers of education. And they become Mm -hmm. the first universities in West Africa. So we have, for Mm -hmm. example, the University of Sankore, which is built, which was based in the mosque that Mansa Musa built in Timbuktu. In our first hundred years of it running, it reaches a stage where it has the largest library in Africa after the Library of Alexandria. So in the history of Africa, they have the largest library of 700,000 manuscripts, nearly a million manuscripts. Wow. And I've done a YouTube video on this. I would ask everyone to go and look at the YouTube video. If you type in Mustafa Briggs and then Sankore, S-A-N-K-O-R-E, you can have more information. But they were teaching not only Islamic studies, they were teaching math, they were teaching science, they were teaching physics, they were teaching astronomy, they were teaching astrology, they were teaching, you know, Greek philosophy, they were teaching all of these things. And not only were they teaching in Arabic, but they were teaching in the native languages, the native West African mm. languages, Mandinka, Fulani, etc. And they preserved these languages through the Ajami script, which was using the Arabic language or the Arabic alphabet to write West African languages. So Islam was a source of preservation of African identity, history and culture in West Africa because people utilized this script because it was oral languages before that did not have alphabets. Mm. They use the Arabic language. And so today even, because when Western colonization happens in French school or English school, you're forced to study in the colonizer's language and forget your own language. Yeah. And your father would tell you, my grandmother would tell me, of yeah. when you go to the school, the Methodist mission school or the Western school or the colonizer's school, if you speak your native language in your school, you are punished. Yep. And that's why today in, in Senegambia region, where we come from, for example, the people who understand Wolof the best or Mandinka the best are always the religious scholars or people who exactly. study traditional Islamic education because in the traditional Islamic education system, they use the native African languages to teach and interpret Arabic texts. 
And every single word that you learn in Arabic has to be partnered with an equivalent word in your native language. So it was a tool because you have to memorize the Quran, you have to memorize these texts. You memorize vocabulary in your language that people who normally use the language don't know. Mm. It's true as well. And I've I've witnessed that firsthand. Me and you have traveled across West Africa. When we meet, like, let's say, people who have been to religious institutes, they have a level of like wolof, which is so deep. Yeah, exactly. And notice they're not wearing Arab clothes. They're not yeah. speaking Arab. They're wearing West African clothes. They're we- yeah. they're speaking West African languages and it doesn't contradict their Islamic identity because they see them going hand in hand. And especially when colonization happens, Islam is the anti-colonial force in West Africa. Let's not let we're going to go on to that. We're going to go on to that. That's very mm-hmm. important. But before we get there, mm-hmm. I need your response to those who say but if you want to truly be an African with a K, you have to worship through the African religions. <laughs> okay, let me break down three reasons why I feel like this is complete nonsense. <laughs> Number one, the word African itself and the concept of Africa as a continent mm-hmm. was invented by Europeans. Yep. And the word Africa comes from Ifriqiya, which is an Arabic word that Mm -hmm. they used for their North African colonies. The first place in history to ever be called Africa was Tunisia. Mm -hmm. Africa has over 2,000 ethnicities, languages, cultures. None of them call themselves Africans. Mm -hmm. And none of them saw themselves as Africans before the colonizers came, colonized the continent, invented the concept of a continent, and said, this continent, we're going to call it Africa. So Africa and it, as a concept, obviously we accept it now as a political reality. That And I think it's important you mentioned that people get confused. And this is why I so hard go against those who claim pan-Africanism, but, but relegate it solely into the realm of the cultural. So for example, it, Pan-Africanism to them is wearing kente cloth and dashiki. And nothing wrong with that. Wear your kente, wear your dashiki, changing your name. If this makes you feel like people who have been historically, their identities have been removed and they don't feel like they fit in somewhere and they want to have a cultural home, then do whatever you want. But let's not mistake that for what the actual mission is. Because we can wear as much cloth as we want. That's not going to change the material conditions of the masses of black people. Mm-hmm. What will would be the political unification under and liberation and total liberation under scientific socialism as defined by Kwame Nkrumah, for example. Mm-hmm. And that was and I think it's very important because for me it's very ahistorical. You're projecting onto the past an image of quote unquote Africa which never existed. Exactly. We had empire, we had tribes, we had different ways. Prior to the emergence of, let's say, the white people on the continent in the way in which they came via slavery, we had no affinity to each other. There wasn't the concept of blackness. This is why Toni Morrison, she kind of starts the genealogy of blackness on the slave ship. Because mm-hmm. for the first time now, you've got so many different tribes mixing together and they're trying to figure out, trying to f- develop a lingua franca. And for the first time, they have almost, they do have a unique shared experience. And that's when we find what blackness, well, some people say that's how blackness started. But prior to before that, we wouldn't have recognized what black was because our lines of demarcation were not, were not, was not skin color. Exactly. Like we never defined ourselves as Africans. We never defined ourselves as black people. If we did, it was in relation to people who were not black. Exactly. And we never defined ourselves upon the modern day nation states that we see. And so I feel like this whole concept of, for example, Pan-Africanism as a movement, 
a lot of it takes place with people who are part of a diaspora who are cut off from their ancestry or their history or their culture and do not know where they fit in. So you mentioned, for example, Kente Cloth and Daishikis. Kente Cloth belongs to the Ashanti ethnic group in modern day Ghana. If you go to Ghana today, they have more than they have. I don't. I don't want to estimate the amount of ethnic groups that they have. But for example, someone that's Dagomba wouldn't wear kente. Someone exactly. that's Hausa would not wear kente. Someone that's Fulani would not wear kente because that's not part of their history, their culture. Dashiki mm-hmm. is a Swahili term, and exactly. Swahili is a pidgin that developed from the mixture of Congo, Niger, Congo languages. No, 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 like Niger, there's a language called the Niger Congo languages and Arabic. Swahili comes from the Arabic word Sawahel, the coast, because that's what they were Mm -hmm. speaking on the coast. It's a pidgin. And half of Swahili or 25% of Swahili has Arabic origins. Yep. So all of that together just shows you that there's no kind of consistency in this whole concept of African history, African culture, African religion. So Mm -hmm. that's the first thing. Then the second thing is, as an African that wants to, say, for example, you're a diaspora African, you're African-American, Afro-Caribbean, you don't know where your ancestors come from, but you say, I don't reject, I reject Islam, I reject Christianity, I reject Judaism, I need to find an African religion. Which religion are you going to follow? Because every single ethnic group had their own religious practices. They had their own religious um, deities, etc. that they yep. worshipped. So, for example, if you're Yoruba, you're worshipping the Orishas. You're worshipping, you know, yeah. Oshun and Obatala and Shango and Yemeya and all of those those deities. As an Igbo man, like my grandfather, my grandmother's Igbo. My father is Nigerian. My mother's Senegambian, right? And Sierra mm-hmm. Leonean. As an Igbo man, they don't know who any of those deities are. They've never worshipped them in their life. Mm-hmm. Or as a, in Senegal, example, for example, or Gambia, the Jolas have their own traditional religion. The, the sources had their own traditional religions. The Fulani had their own traditional religions. The Wolofs had their own traditional religions. The Serer had their own traditional religions before Islam came and unified them. Mm-hmm. So with that, this whole concept of African religion itself becomes ridiculous because every single ethnic group has a different religion yep. and a different culture and a different belief system. Some of them believe in reincarnation. Some of them don't. The, the deities that these group worship, another group doesn't worship. So you can't now say you're looking for an African religion when you don't even know where your ancestors come from and what religion that would be. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing that I really dislike is when people say, okay, we need to go back to the ancient Egyptian religion. Because none of you can read hieroglyphics. None of you can speak the ancient Egyptian language. None of you have direct access to ancient Egyptian historical texts. And what you do know comes from Western academics and Orientalists. Mm-hmm. Speak on it. And that is why the anti-Islam, I feel, is so prominent in these kind of circles because everything that they study and all the books that they read are written by Orientalist scholars who have an agenda against Islam. And so that taints the viewpoint that they give when they talk about the spread of Islam in these countries. So for a lot of people who call themselves Afrocentrists and a lot of people who call themselves Pan-Africanists, they just become neo-Orientalists without realising it. Mm-mm. Because the okay. prejudice that they have against Islam is based on... Because, honestly, if you're here reading the laws of Ma'at, who translated <laughs> it for you? It's one white man that went to Egypt and figured out the hieroglyphics and went and wrote the academic paper. For real. It's not black people travelling to Egypt and studying these things and studying... The only black person I know that can read and write hieroglyphics and understands the ancient Egyptian language is Imam Fode Drame, and he's a Gambian mm. Islamic scholar from West Africa. 
And he's done amazing work on, he's translated the Quran into hieroglyphics and all of that. He's the only black person I know that knows this language. And look at him, with all the knowledge that he has of the ancient Egyptian religion, he's an Islamic scholar, he's a Muslim, and he's an imam. Wow. So that just shows you that this whole concept of having an African religion, I feel like the African religion is Islam. Because what greater honor does any religion give Africa than the fact that Mecca, the holiest city of Islam, and the temple that we pray towards, the Kaaba, was established upon the story and the efforts of an African black woman. Mm. Hajar, the wife of Abraham, was an ancient Egyptian woman. We can call her ancient Egyptian because if we look at the time where Abraham was supposed to have married her, that was during the Middle Kingdom in ancient Egypt. Before Egypt was invaded by the Greeks or the Romans or the Hyssops or the Turks, or the Arabs who make up the modern-day Egyptian population today. Mm -hmm. So the original ancient Egyptians who we know were black East African people, similar to who we see in Somalia next door and Ethiopia and, and Eritrea and all of those places. This is a black African woman who's taken to the middle of the desert. She discovers the well of Zamzam, if you follow the story, and then she starts to give water to tribes. Arab tribes come and settle down with her. Her son intermarries into those tribes. And that's how people start to live in Mecca. Then her son mm -hmm. and her son's father are the ones who establish the Kaaba. So us as Muslims, we pray five times a day towards a city established by a black African woman. And we are required to go on Hajj, which is pilgrimage yep. to Mecca once in our lifetime. And when we get there, one of the pillars of Hajj is running between two mountains, Safa and Marwa, in imitation of this black African woman. So <laughs> what? So yeah. as an African, no, no, for real. For I real. feel 100% comfortable with Islam as my religion because historically it makes more sense than all of these other theories and concepts that people are trying to enforce upon us as a people. But people will always say, not even a but, but how would you respond to the common thing is the Arab slave trade? Okay, but I feel like, uh, okay, we can't deny the Arab slave trade. And I'm not one of those apologists that's going to come and try and convince people about, I'm not going into the moral side of slavery and justifying it or not justifying it. That's not my okay. issue here. My issue with the Arab slave trade is that slavery was a part of all world economies up until that point. And the Arab slave trade was not racialized in the same way that the transatlantic slave trade was, number one. Number two, if we look at the Arab slave trade, for example, in West Africa, it didn't exist. Yeah. West Africans were capturing other Africans and selling them into slavery through wars. I mean, it's tribal wars, ethnic wars, kingdoms. Slavery only exists because tribes, towns, cities, empires, kingdoms go to war with each other. Whoever's captured yeah. as a prisoner of war is enslaved and then they're sold off. But the whole economy that we have that needed slaves you can talk more about this as somebody who's done analysis on capitalism and, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, the need for slave wasn't as large as it was when it came to the transatlantic slave trade. So people mm -hmm. were selling their prisoners of war, etc. But slavery existed in every single African culture mm -hmm. before Arabs and Europeans came in. And for people who practice traditional African religions, I feel like it's hypocrisy for them to talk about slavery when when you go... If you practice, for example, a traditional Yoruba religion, traditional Yoruba culture, slavery was a part of it. The temples had slaves. The idols that you worship had slaves. Or the deities that you worship had slaves. Till today, you can go to a temple for a deity and there are girls who live in that temple who are the slaves to that deity. 
who will be children taken from families to work in the service of the priests out of their own free will. And that exists till today in Benin, in, in Nigeria, mm-hmm. and in many other places. So slavery as a thing, we can't pin, pin it to the Arab or pin it to the... The only reason Arab slave trade was such a big thing was because the Arab empires were so big. So you yeah. can pinpoint and say, oh yeah, they were taking millions of people. The numbers that they give are way, way are inflated, number one. And then number yeah. two... The time that we really, really see the Arabs actively slave trading is in East Africa. Yes. So North Africa slavery exists. It wasn't just Africans, sub-Saharan Africans being taken. They had a vast impact, influx of European slaves through the conquests of Spain and Portugal. You had a vast influx of Persian slaves. The first slaves we see in the history of the Islamic empire are Persians and Romans. When the Arabs conquer Byzantine, the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, and when they conquer Persia, that's the first time we start to see slaves coming in mm-hmm. in mass. So slavery wasn't racialized in the Arab world like that until yeah. much later. It's racialized now, but at that time, in the beginning of the Islamic empires, it wasn't, number one. Mm-hmm. But when we start to see the real, real, Afri- the real, real Arab slave trade, where is it? It's in East Africa. Yeah. the Swahili coast, through mm-hmm. Oman and all of these places. But the infrastructure of that slavery and that slave trade was established by the Portuguese. Exactly. The Portuguese were the first ones to come into East Africa, go inland, bring slaves to the coast, sell them to Arabs or sell them to Portuguese and build slave forts and build all of the infrastructure. Then when the Arabs came and took over the Swahili coast from the Portuguese, that's when they continued the slave trade that the Portuguese had already established. It was morally wrong of them to do so and against their Islamic faith to do so, but, you know, they justified it however they wanted to justify it. But it was an extension of the Euro-American slave trade because it was the Portuguese that established that. So you could put that Arab slave trade as an extension of the transatlantic slave trade that started in Europe. And this is why it's... I can't stress enough how important it is that you people learn history but also okay so three last things then Mm -hmm. i'm mindful of time why is it then we find anti-blackness then or anti-black racism within traditional islamic texts okay in the time of the prophet muhammad Mm -hmm. peace and blessings be upon him he wasn't actively racist and he went out of his way to try and end racism amongst his companions yeah I actively just dis- I discuss this in my book. When you look all go and feel the my book and order it, you'll be able to see <laughs> examples of that. Let me just do that shameless plug. <laughs> if we continue on into the Middle Ages, the golden years of the Islamic Empire, etc., this is the time when Islam has spread across territories that were not traditionally Arab territories. Mm-hmm. And they've taken over an Arabized people who are not originally Arabs. Mm-hmm. So when you go into the Levant. Syria, Palestine, etc. Levantine people and Phoenician people become Arabized. Mm-hmm. Persians become Arabized. Your Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines, they become Arabized. Damascus, mm-hmm. which becomes the capital of the Islamic Empire in the eighth century, was the capital of the Bi- was one of the major cities of the Byzantine Empire, and they mm-hmm. have major Greek and Roman influences in their architecture. The the, the Umayyad Mosque, which was the seat of the Islamic Caliphate was uh, built upon the remnants of an Orthodox church. Mm -hmm. Turkey, Istanbul, Constantinople, it was called in the time of the Roman Empire. 
So these people who are these are people who become Arabized, but they're not Arabs. Yeah. Then they start to learn the religion. They become Islamic scholars, but the racism that was part of their social structure and their cultural identity before Islam seeps through into their Islamic scholarship. That's all it was. But I don't mm-hmm. see it as being an Islamic problem or an Islamic issue because the Quran itself, as I mentioned earlier, and the Sunnah, the example of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, and that scholarship describes all these major figures in the Quran and all these major religious figures as being black. Exactly. Exactly. Speak to me about how it was Islam or a defense of Islam that really fueled anti-colonial struggles across West Africa, for example. Okay. So West Africa, we start to see kingdoms of Muslims and non-Muslims living side by side. Yep. And Islam becomes a major cultural influence across many West African kingdoms and nations. Then I would like to say, with the coming of colonialism and the transatlantic Mm -hmm. slave trade, we start to see a major shift in West African society. Mm -hmm. where Europeans are not only raiding West African towns, villages, cities, kidnapping people and enslaving them and then taking them to the West, Mm -hmm. but they are paying tribes or giving them, for example, they're making deals with African kings, giving them arms, giving them alcohol, etc., to raid other tribes Mm -hmm. and then sell them the prisoners of war. So they fuel many, many civil wars and many, many different, ethnic uh, skirmishes across West Africa to fund or to fuel the transatlantic slave trade. When that happens, we start to see a lot of Quranic schools because the tradition is people will send their children to go and live with scholars, Islamic scholars, to study and memorize the Quran. So you might find one man that has in his house or in his mosque or in his institution a thousand children or 500 children or students, etc., those are the places that start to be raided by slave traders. So the religious scholars start to see this as an attack on Islam. Yep. We see, for example, Abdul Qadir Khan, who many yep. people say was the first person to actively revolt in Africa against the transatlantic slave trade. He does so as a response to the fact that Quranic schools are being raided. And Rudolf Ware has um, an amazing book about this. It's called uh, the, the, the Walking Quran where he talks about yeah. the relationship of Quranic education and West African society. And he's someone who's spoken about this, so Professor Rudolf Ware of the um, University of California, where Abdul Qadir Khan sees this as an attack on Islam. So he starts to wage a jihad, a holy war, against these tribes who are raiding his schools and raiding the schools of his friends to kidnap people to take them into slavery. In Senegal, we see Islam as an anti-colonial force. Shah Omar Fouti Tal and all of these Maba Jahuba, all of these Islamic scholars are the ones who unite because Islam was the only thing that could unite people across tribes and ethnicities. Mm-hmm. So Mabu Jahuba, for example, was an anti-colonial warrior in Senegal. He was Fulani and he was a student of Sheikh Omar Futital. Sheikh Omar Futital established the Tukulo Empire where he fought against the French and he fought against um, traditional West African kings who were in line with or in league with French colonialists. Mm-hmm. And he established his empire, which was an Islamic empire. He had a student called Mabu Jahuba. Oh, wait, wait, sorry. So African kings were allied to the colonialists. Of course. Colonial... They were so allied to the now. colonialists. That's why they were raiding the Muslims. Because them as non-Muslims, they saw the Muslims 
and they raided them and sold the prisoners of war to the French. So you see now, if you want to apply Marxist lens now, you'd say mm-hmm. that it was the Muslims who were like considered the proletariat, the working classes people, because they're the people who are almost at the bottom of society, not bottom of society, but they're not in cahoots. So they're not working with those who considered the bourgeoisie. Because think about it, what position or what power was given to those who were capturing slaves and selling them on? They were, they were, they were like given like middle class status, no? Mm-hmm. So I had to probably put that in there. But carry on. <laughs> exactly. So Mama Jahuba, he's Fulani ethnically. Mm-hmm. He travels into Senegal and he wages a jihad against the French. Yep. In this jihad, he gathers all of the Islamic scholars that he can from across Senegal. Al-Haji Abdullah Nyas, who's the father of Sheikh Ibrahim Nyas. They're Wolof, mm-hmm. ethnically. They're descended from the king of Jalof and the king of Kajor, which were two mm-hmm. traditional Wolof kingdoms, Wolof-speaking kingdoms in Senegal. They're not Fulani. Yeah. There's nothing to join a Wolof and a Fulani except Islam in this situation. Mm-hmm. He calls... Imam Usman C, I believe, the grandfather, the father of Al-Haji Malik C, who are Wolofized Fulanis, and Sheikh Ahmed Bamba's father, Mamur Antasali. Mm. He gathers them all across ethnic lines, across ethnic barriers, and they gather together on the basis of their Islam to lead an anti-colonial movement and war against the French who are invading Senegal, colonizing and kidnapping. Sheikh Ahmed Bamba the famous Islamic scholar, his younger sister was kidnapped by slave traders. Oh, wow. And taken to America. Some people believe, yeah, America. Nobody hears from her after she's kidnapped, but when he's young, he has a sister who's his full biological sister who's kidnapped by slave raiders. And so we start to see Islam become an anti-colonial force in West Africa. Then within the colonial system now, Islam becomes a means of preservation of African culture and legacy, especially in the Senegambian region. Because the people who align with the French, they align with Catholicism, they align with the French language, French literature, French culture. Mm. The Islamic scholars refuse to send shit. Al-Haji Abdullah after the jihad is ended and the French win, he migrates to Gambia because he doesn't want his children to enter the French education system. The British weren't forcing people to enter the British education system at the time. So he migrated to the British colony of the Gambia. And that's where he raised his children. And that's where his son, Sheikh Ibrahim Yas, who later became the greatest Islamic scholar of West Africa in the 20th century, he memorized the Quran and studied the Arabic language with his father in Gambia. Mm. He said, and I remember hearing a story, there was a time where he was working on the farm for his father and his father, and he used a French word. And his father punished him for two days because of that. So we start to see Islamic scholarship, Islamic culture, Islamic heritage. If you look at, for example, Tuba, so what starts to happen is the traditional West African kingdoms, so especially in the Senegambian region, I I focus mostly on the Senegambian region because that's the region I'm most comfortable with and I know the most about. After the French destroy all the traditional kingdoms that exist, Walo, Kajor, Bawal, Sin, Salum, and Jolof, the people, the proletariats, as you would say, the farmers the land workers they don't have kings to serve anymore they gather around islamic scholars because west africa scholars what they would do is they would travel far away from the political centers far away from the kings far away from anything to do with politics and they would establish their own self-subsistent communities based around prayer education and farming Mm. so the a sheikh a scholar would go into a faraway village or a faraway area. He would build a mosque, 
where he could pray. He would build a madrasa, a school where he could teach. And he would establish a farm where he could grow his food that he can eat. So he doesn't have to rely on anyone and he can be totally free and independent. So the sheikhs do this. If we see Al-Haji Abdullah Nyas, he established a, a village, Taiba Nyasir. If we see Al-Sheikh Al- Ahmed Bamba, he established Tuba. And so when the kings and all of these people are destroyed by the colonialists, people start to flock towards these sheikhs and live with them in their villages, work on their farms, study the Quran and study traditional Islamic sciences with them. As so a contrary of- to, yeah, so contrary to the misinformation or the you know misdirected belief that Islam was an imperial force or a religion that enslaved for many black people at the time Islam became the means in which people felt freedom no it's freedom liberation and resistance Sheikh Ahmed Bamba, for example, yep. you know, most of Senegal, I mean, Islam has existed in Senegal for over a thousand years, but most yep. of Senegal was not Muslim until the 18th and 19th centuries. Mm-hmm. Because when the colonialists came in, people started flocking towards the sheikhs and converting to Islam. Mm. Sheikh Ahmed Bamba, for example, had a movement within his um, organization called the Baifal. Most of the Baifal were converts to Islam who came and started working on the farms, etc., and converting to Islam. Sheikh Ibrahim Nyas, same thing, and Al-Haji Abdullah Nyas, they converted so many people to Islam. There was a wife of, um, there was a student of Sheikh Ibrahim Nyas called Yanin Mboj, and she was the daughter, or the granddaughter, sorry, of the of a king, a Serer king, who, who existed in that area in Kaulak at the time. When Sheikh Ibrahim Nyas wanted to establish his city, Medina Bay, his town, Medina Bay, Gedel Mboj, was the king that gave him the land. But Gedel Mboj wasn't Muslim. But his granddaughter, Yanin Mboj, became Muslim and became a student of Sheikh Ibrahim Nyas. And he married her to his closest student, Sayyidi Ali Sisi. I spoke to her recently and she was telling me the story of how she converted to Islam. And that was as late as the 1940s or 50s. Wow. But people saw between, giving the choice between a West African Sheikh or a white French man, they went to the West African Muslim Sheikh and they saw Islam as closer in line and more of a power and a resistance against French colonialism. And that's you know in what? Senegal and that's in many, many other places. You know when you know, you know, and we can talk for so long, <laughs> yeah. But you know when you know, this is just a mic drop moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is for me, again, this episode, I'm very aware that I'm not someone that's like trying to, you know, mass convert people. You know, God guides who he wills. That's, that's why I believe. And this is not meant to be an episode of kind of where it comes across as evangelical in many ways. It's not. <laughs> but I think it's very important. And it's important that the role that Islam played in revolutionary struggle and has and can still do that. And I think I have a lot of critiques, those who follow me on social media, of the arrangement of Muslim societies today, particularly in the West. And I have a, a lot of um, critique in the way I feel that what I see Islam is in the way that Malcolm speaks about Islam, in the way that mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali spoke about Islam, in the way that Imam Jamil Amin speaks about Islam, in the way that so many of our revolutionary figures, are so many Black Panthers who became Muslim, so many of those who left the nation and then embraced Orthodox Islam, mm-hmm. So many that we've uh, of really and truly laid the foundations of a lot of movement that we see today and historically 
they found that what gave them that strength or what was a guiding force for them was mm-hmm. Islam. That's not to say that Islam has to be the only kind of uh, catalyst that moves people to revolutionary praxis. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very disingenuous to say that there's nothing there. You know what I mean? It's almost, that's what I think. I think, And that's what upsets me. And I think, again, and I think what? if we're going to tell the story, we've got to tell the whole story. The whole story. And what I, I, I think I have the final word. Yeah, what I find interesting with what you just said, I know you're trying to wrap the podcast up, but I need to just <laughs> put this <laughs> No, no, say it, say it, say it. You mentioned all of these figures who people in the diaspora, such as Malcolm X, and all of these movements that occurred, and they found Black identity and revolution through Islam. It's so important. And as we always say, history is key to look back at the historical reasons of how they even discovered Islam and why they chose to become Muslim in the first place. And I feel through my research, and I mentioned this in chapter four of my book, Beyond Villa, which is available for pre-order and will be released. (laughs) (laughs) That, okay, so we look at the Pan-African movement. We start to see, for example, Marcus Garvey, all of these people calling towards a renaissance of, of, of people returning to Africa. There's mm-hmm. a man called Edward Wilmot Blyden, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you you know who he is, but he was a liberated African or descended from liberated Africans who were formerly enslaved and they returned to Africa. So he's like my people, he's like Creole. Yeah. And he became one of the major intellectuals and figures behind the Pan-African movement in the 19th century, so in the 1800s. Yeah. And he, through his study, he lived in Liberia. So he was a freed slave, and then he returned to Liberia in Africa and and Sierra Leone, and he traveled across Nigeria, etc., and he wrote books. One of his books is called Christianity, Islam, and the Negro Race. Mm. And in this book, he talks about these two religions and their role in Africa and their role within the black man. And he's not even Muslim himself, but... His conclusion in that book through analysis, analyzing African culture, history, society, is that Islam is positive for the Negro race and Christianity isn't. That was his conclusion in the 19th century. And his books are books that are studied by people and spread by people like Marcus Garvey, all of these people. So that's how we start to see the intellectual, because we, if you look at a lot of the black r- resistance movements in, in America, such as you know the Moorish Science Temple, the Black Panthers, the Nation of Islam, etc., they all begin through educated African-Americans. So these are people who read these kind of books, and that's where they first start to see Islam or become reacquainted with Islam. It's through this book written by Edward Wilmot Blyden called Christianity, Islam, and the Negro Race. And then that's when they start to look into Islam, and then some of them form their own pseudo-Islamic movements, such as the Nation of yeah. Islam, the Moorish Science Temple, the Nation of mm. Gods and Earths, etc., but they're inspired to go and look to Islam because of what they saw Edward Wilmot Blyden write about the positive impact of Islam in Africa. And so they looked to Islam as a religion that went with their black identity and their African identity, as opposed to Christianity, which was a force of colonial imperialism and Western, yeah, Western colonial imperialism. And that's what leads to Nation of Islam, which then leads to Malcolm X, which then leads to what we see today. Countless of many, yeah, countless many others. Exactly. And I think actually, finally, we know historically there's over, there's almost always an overlooking when it comes to you know black contribution or the development of different projects on the continent. And people do ask me, for example, oh, what about the Marxism and or the socialism and 
some people say socialism is like anti-black because Marx was a racist, which I've covered in the episode previous to this one mm-hmm. um, with Annie. But mm-hmm. then people will say, oh, but what about, you know, it's not for black people. But And then they say it's not for black people and it's not for Muslims. And again, that for me, it's like, you know, we always say how knowledge is power. But, but his history is also very important to read because, again, when you look at Sekou Toure, who was the president of Guinea, a Muslim-majority country, or look at Modouba Keta, who was the president of a Muslim-majority country of Mali, they both adopted a Marxist analyst, a Marxist lens, applied it to their conditions in which they find themselves in West Africa, but they were both devout Muslims and they exactly. saw no contradictions in that. So I think it's very, you know, it's very important that these stories and figures are highlighted. But... This has been the longest episode so far, I think, but it was worth <laughs> it because this this was a masterclass. Please, please, please buy Mustafa Briggs's book on pre-order. I'll put the link. And let me the, just um, inject something in there. Go on, Sorry. go on, go on. You know, you just mentioned, for example, Sekou Toure. Yeah. His real name was Amadou Sekou Toure. Yep. And he was called Sekou Toure. Sekou is a West African pronunciation of the word Sheikh. Yep. Because he was descended from an Islamic scholar called Samori Toure, who was one of these anti-colonial West African Islamic scholars that I mentioned earlier who established their own empires as a result or as a force of anti-colonialism. And that was continued in the legacy of Sekou Toure, who then becomes a democratically elected president. So we can see that there's a connection between all of this and one leads to the other. Samori Toure, who's an Islamic scholar, he finds his anti-colonial strength in Islam, has a grandson or a great-grandson who becomes a socialist because he sees that that was the solution in his time. Samori's Toure's mm-hmm. solution in his time was establish the Sharia, establish an Islamic empire. His grandson's was, I'm a devout Muslim, I practice, I pray five times a day, I honor the legacy of my ancestors and Islam, and I'm a socialist. So yep. things continue to evolve and adapt as time goes on. So yeah, as Mom, you said, bye, no, no, no. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, please, I'm gonna put the episode. I'll put Mustafa Briggs's socials in the description of this episode. You listen to the Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Please, as always, like, comment, subscribe, and until next time, peace out. Inshallah.